Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, singer-songwriter Gwyneth Moreland. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hooksprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. Snap Sessions is proud to announce that our own Doug Nunn has published his new book, Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus. Jolly Old Elf is part Santa biography and part expose of the North Pole's long-hidden art treasures. Check Snap Sessions' website for further info, or you can purchase Jolly Old Elf at Amazon.com or independent publisher Ingram Spark, and you can order it at your local bookstore, like Mendocino's own Gallery Bookshop and Bookwinkles. Of the stars. My time working on the Simpsons movie. Like millions of kids in this country and around the world, I loved cartoons from the moment I saw them as a child. I remember seeing Disney's Snow White at the age of five and was delighted by the seven dwarves singing Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from earth we go. I was further mesmerized by the beauty of Fantasia and the tragic moments of Bambi. I don't know if I have ever laughed harder than when I saw Chip and Dale humiliating Donald Duck in his orchard. <laughs> I was about eight years old, and I was laughing so hard, I think I swallowed the whole cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by all of it. Growing up in the 1950s and 60s, a long, long time ago, I was a huge fan of Warner Brothers cartoons. Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. And watch up, Doc. Be very, very quiet. I'm hunting wabbits. <laughs> Yosemite Sam and Foghorn Leghorn. Yeah, you summer. What's a big R say? What's a big R dare? Chasing my worm. You're a cat, son. Cats don't eat worms. I loved those characters. And I don't think I ever stopped rooting for Wiley e. Coyote.
I marveled at the pantheon of voices Mel Blanc could do. And I was astonished when I heard that when Mel got into a terrible auto wreck at the age of 52, it was a doctor saying, Bugs, can you hear me? That brought Mel Blanc out of a coma to say, Yeah, what's up, Doc? So in the mid-1990s, after years as a skit writer for our double act Burns and Nunn and our comedy group Hit and Run Theater, I started writing animation scripts for the cartoon renaissance that was then going on in Hollywood. The Simpsons were into their fifth, sixth, and seventh years. Mmm, donuts. Steven Spielberg was producing the Animaniacs. It's time for and various other smaller operations like Klasky Shupo were broadcasting cartoons regularly on the thriving new Nickelodeon network. Nick, 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 Nickelodeon! I wrote several cartoon spec scripts for cartoons like The Simpsons, King of the Hill, and Pinky and the Brain. The Pinky and the Brain, yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. My one-off script of Copzilla, where a giant cop attacks Donut Town, won third prize at the World Animation Festival's 1997 cartoon screenwriting competition. As far as I could see, I was on my way. But cartoon dreams wither amid economic realities, and I was soon back to teaching. You want to go on a field trip, huh? That sounds like a good idea. I got it. We could go toward the jail. You know, I'll get free transportation, too, if you ask another question like that. Even so, at various times when I was laid off as a teacher, I would try to learn some new skills. In the fall of 2003, after being furloughed as a history teacher at Mendocino High School, I went back to school, this time at San Francisco State University's Digital Intensive Course. For a full semester of film editing, basic animation, sound tech, and film production courses. Over the next few years, I alternated between teaching and being laid off and trying to see if there might be a place for me somewhere in the land of cartoons. <laughs> then came what seemed to be a golden opportunity. There's gold in them die hills. I was looking online for teaching opportunities at the beginning of March 2007 when I got an email from my old friend Richard Sakai, president of Gracie Films. Shh. Richard was producing the Simpsons movie and asked if I had any experience using Photoshop, After Effects, and Maya, all software programs having to do with drawing, animation, and special effects. I thought, yes, I especially love Photoshop and After Effects, and I had produced a handful of homemade cartoons on my YouTube channel, but I wasn't necessarily an expert at any of them. Could they really use me? Over the course of the next few days, I ended up talking with Richard and his co-producer, Richard Rainus, as well as other producers and production assistants who worked for 20th Century Fox and Film Roman, the longtime animation shop for The Simpsons TV show. I had to fill out applications, get people to vouch for my experience, and make calls to ascertain whether I could qualify as an After Effects artist. Everybody was nice to me, but that didn't erase my self-doubt. Who was I as an animator? An amateur at best. I had done a series of cartoons in the previous seven years since getting my first Power Mac G4 back in the year 2000. I got copies of Adobe After Effects 4, 
Photoshop 5.5 and Premiere 5 and went to work teaching myself video and animation. Over time, I began to produce homemade cartoons, many of which were very silly. I worked with my neighbor, teenager Dan Sullivan, who was more skilled as an editor than I was. I say, old boy, if I don't do it, who will? That's the way the cookie crumbles there, old sport. And who added Final Cut Pro to our software arsenal. Soon we were producing a series of little cartoons with names like Zor in Space, Robo Disco. What'll it be, Tin Man? I'd like a Bodweiser, please. You got it, Steelhead. And Teen Lennon. They were fun and a bit cheesy, but when I joined SFSU's Digital Video Intensive course in the fall of 2003, I added a few cartoons of my own, with animated sequences in The Horse Whispers Tour and a full-tilt stop-motion parody of the Bush administration called The Right Wing. Welcome back to the Donald Rumsfeld Show. Well, we've heard the president. Who can deny that the California insurrection needs to be crushed? Don, I say give me the help I need to crush these evildoers, and we can tell them Orange County über alles. On Sunday, March 11, 2007, I drove down to Los Angeles to begin 10 weeks of work on a real, big-time animated movie. Hooray for Hollywood, that's gooey bally hooly Hollywood. The Simpsons had 18 seasons of cartoons under their belt when I arrived. They had perfected an organization in which a group of writers, artists, sound and video editors, animators, and voiceover performers had been working for years. The 15 to 18 writers were especially famous as a bunch of mostly Harvard-educated Weisenheimers, not afraid of obscure and abstruse references, and consistently able to tickle people's funny bones. (laughs) This was certainly true in this country as the show was the longest-running sitcom and cartoon in TV history. But it was also true of the entire planet, as The Simpsons had been one of the most successful shows from the UK to Germany to Australia to Japan. The very next morning, I began work in the stacked trailer. And then the annex, small buildings near Simpsons HQ on the 20th Century Fox lot in Century City. Century City sprang from make-believe, the dream world of a motion picture studio. In the center was the Simpsons bungalow, which had formerly belonged to Frank Sinatra. A giant sculpted Homer Simpson arm holding a donut aloft straddled the entrance. Across a small parking lot was a two-story building looking like temporary World War II housing. This housed Matt Groening, co-creator of the show, as well as the Simpsons writers. The annex was full of artists and animators working under a production coordinator who would dole out various projects. We all had Power Mac G5s with the RAM maxed out and running at top-of-the-line speed. We were furnished with Photoshop 7 and After Effects 7, which was Adobe's state-of-the-art animation software at that time. We would pull image files down from big servers, work on them on our desktops, have them inspected, and then send them back for further fine-tuning. About 50 yards away was another big trailer full of animators and artists, which was the real nerve center of the operation. There, producer Sakai would meet with producer Reynas, director David Silverman, and the production coordinators Peter Gave and Taylor Allen and develop the game plan for the day. The animators and artists would typically arrive by 10 a.m. and work until 8 p.m. or later with time out for lunch and dinner. 
Chow time. Those two meals were genuine highlights of the day. Every morning, production assistants would drop in and ask us to order lunch from assortment of menus. I was amazed at the variety involved, at how culinarily hip the menus were, and how much it all cost. The Simpsons movie was paying for everything, so one really could get obsessively gastronomical if one wanted to. I knew one guy who ordered a giant soup, a giant sandwich, and a piece of cheesecake every day for lunch. <coughs> Dinner was always catered, usually by an ethnic restaurant, and there was some really delicious food. This included Greek, Thai, Chinese, and Middle Eastern meals, and I had to watch the amount I was eating as it got harder and harder to fit behind my G5 as time went by. The schedule on any major movie production is always formidable, and this animated version was no exception. We typically worked an average of six days every week, with long periods without days off. The production was in a constant state of flux, as we repeatedly had to rebuild the film after it had been rewritten and tested before audiences. At one point, I worked 21 days without a day off, and made a stunning amount of overtime almost all of which seemed to be eaten up by taxes. I couldn't complain about the pay, but asking for time off was difficult, as there was always a feeling of pulling together and making sacrifices for the cause. When I flew my girlfriend down for the weekend, we were lucky to be able to see each other for a few hours here and there. If I had lived in L.A., it would have been different, I suppose. But still, the schedule did take some getting used to. You want the whole day off tomorrow, I suppose. If quite convenient, it's sir. not convenient. Animators and artists are a super creative and quirky breed, and I was amazed at the level of artistic talent in this group. Cartoonist Luis Escobar had been drawing for The Simpsons since he was recruited out of high school some 14 years earlier. Liz Climo was a 25-year-old who had a similar background to Luis. She had been working on The Simpsons for five years already and could seemingly draw almost anything. Since that time, Liz has become famous for Rory the Dinosaur and other books and has been interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air. Animator Azariah Owens had been doing After Effects Photoshop and a variety of other programs since he was trained right out of high school and was earning a fantastic living as an After Effects specialist. On the other hand, I started out as an inexperienced guy and probably would have stayed that way if I hadn't been done a lovely favor by the producer. I worked really hard to improve my After Effects skills and trained persistently to upgrade my knowledge from that of a guy who had learned on After Effects 4 back in the year 2000 when dinosaurs ruled the earth to a guy who needed to have state-of-the-art skills on After Effects 7. During times when I had no projects assigned, I would work on various lessons in After Effects training manuals or go online with lynda.com, a very excellent training site now known as LinkedIn Learning, and I would study tutorials. I learned a lot, but I always wished that I knew more. By 2007, I had been involved in various levels of show business for over 28 years, from stage performer to small-time producer to improv coach to animator, and timing had always been a riddle to me. They say you can't teach timing, that you just have to possess it intuitively. It's a strange gift, like the ability to play piano really well or do complex mathematical equations as a small child. Some people are born with these gifts, and some are not. 
My old comedy partner, Tracy Burns, she always had good timing. She would know when to raise her voice or drop that punchline in, and it would work almost all the time. Auditioning is also a skill I have always admired, but I think some of the ability to audition well is a mysterious talent, a quirky thing, just like timing. I felt the same about this wonderful opportunity with The Simpsons. I was offered a job to work on a great production, and I did the best I could. But as my production coordinator, Taylor, gave me work, he soon figured out that I was more suited to the simpler tasks. Perhaps if I had arrived at this opportunity with more top-notch animation skills, maybe I could have risen to the challenge. As I think about it now, my Snap Sessions colleagues, Marshall Brown and Ken Krause, both better techies than I am, may have been able to make a better go of it. Ah, good old Blitzy, the muse of timing. But back in 2007, each day as I made my way down Coldwater Canyon to Beverly Drive to Pico and then turned on to Avenue of the Stars, I figured I was lucky to have this shot, no matter how late it came. Maybe I was the oldest guy on the 40-person crew. I'm old and I'm not happy. Everything today is improved and I don't like it. Maybe I was the least experienced animator, but I was working on a movie that was likely to be a great success. And, as it turned out, it was. In 2007, The Simpsons movie grossed over $535 million worldwide and was one of the top ten films of that year. A few weeks after the film came out, the producers sent the whole crew Big Simpsons jackets and beautiful books showing how to draw characters from the show. There was a card with a picture of Homer, Moe, and Barney draining beers at Moe's Tavern. Underneath was a caption which said, Cheers to you for all you do. This jacket's for you. With thanks and gratitude for making this project a smashing success. As Otto, the longtime Simpsons school bus driver, would say, Cool, dude. If you look closely as the credits roll, you will see a group called After Effects Artists. They come after all the voiceover stars, after the artists and storyboard maestros are listed, and before all the South Korean cleanup artists crawl their way slowly up that screen. You will see Doug Nunn listed, whether you are watching the film in Hollywood, Hamburg, or Hiroshima. And now I have a lovely Simpsons drawing book and a jacket to go with it. I will wear it when I sit down at the computer to make my next homegrown cartoon. The
Hi there, I'm Ken Krause, and I'm one of the voices of our feisty little Snap Sessions podcast. Together with interviewer, writer, and commentator Doug Nunn and techmeister Marshall Brown, we produce the mix of politics, comedy, and interviews that is Snap Sessions. Maintaining the good ship SS Snap Sessions... Isn't free. Expenses include our website hosting, Zoom Pro account, transcription services for interviews, and other things that keep our podcast snapping. If you enjoy our quirky show, we'd like to ask you to become one of our Snap supporters. We've even added some membership levels to make it easier for you to join our Snap family through our Patreon link at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions. To help us produce our monthly antidote to the media madness, you can join our support team as a baby snapper for just $1 a month. For only $3 a month, you can become a snip snapper. We also have our existing levels of support through Patreon with the Mighty Mini Snapper at $5 a month, the Simple Snapper at $10 a month, the Beefy Big Snapper at $20 a month, and for $35 a month, you can become an exalted Snappus Maximus. And for those of you wishing to make a one-time gift to our Snappy Cause, we now have a Buy Me a Coffee account at buymeacoffee.com forward slash snap sessions. You can contribute as much as you are able to whenever you can. All our Snap supporters will receive credit on our website, thesnapsessions.com. For those who contribute at the upper levels, there are special rewards, such as credit on the podcast, early access to the episodes, unedited transcripts of the interviews, access to special music, and more surprises. Links to all support levels are on our website at thesnapsessions.com. And please know that we appreciate any support you can give. And we appreciate you listening to our snaptastic offerings. We are grateful to you as listeners and hope you will help us keep making Snap Sessions a part of your auditory input. Now, on with the show. Welcome, I'm here with uh, Gwyneth Moreland and... um, Gwyneth is a longtime uh, singer and songwriter, and um, she uh, has represented the North Coast uh, without knowing she's representing the North Coast. She just happens to be a great musician who we're very proud of. And, well, we welcome you to Snap Sessions, Gwyneth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I know uh, you, you had said that you're the youngest of five kids who grew up here on the North Coast. I know your mom and dad. And um, uh, you're raised by back to the land parents. Right. I consider myself one of those guys too. Totally. We were in Albion, and here you were here in Mendocino. T- talk to us a little bit about your Mendocino uh, childhood. Yeah. Well, um, they my parents lived out Little River Airport Road when I was born, so I lived out there on I think it was about 20 acres. Um, you know, in the 80s. <laughs> and then my dad at that time was a contractor and he built houses. And um, then he became a school teacher in the mm-hmm. late 80s. Mm-hmm. And that's when we moved to town. And we first lived in one of the Mendoza's houses by the fire department now on Little Lake Road. And then while well, they were building this place here where we're sitting, um, having this interview at my parents' house in their garden. Um, and under the gazebo, under the gazebo <laughs> built by my dad, yeah, Michael Moreland and Karen Moreland. And they were Stanford graduates, and they just 
I don't know. They always say their saying is that they were following the bluebird of happiness <laughs> and they ended up here in Mendocino, you know, and ended up having five kids and yeah, definitely back to the land and we're also born again Christians during that time too. They were real active in the that scene, the Mendocino Presbyterian Church and the Lord's Land and Antioch Ranch in the 70s and early 80s. Um and so that's also another kind of subculture that happened here on the coast um, yeah. that I was raised around when I was real young. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we moved to town, that all kind of, you know, wasn't such a big part of our lives because we weren't so close to those uh, places, the mm-hmm. Antioch Ranch and all of that. Yeah. So Now, I uh, was assuming that early on in your life you were interested in music. And then I, I when it, it, I read your um, you know, bio type thing, it talks about by the age of 16 or so, you were already wanting to record and starting to record. Your brother Morgan is a very good guitar player, and actually he's a, a luthier too, yes. isn't it? He yes. actually builds uh, string instruments. Talk to us a little bit about when you got started and maybe Morgan's influence on you. Okay, yeah. Well, back um, when we were living in Little River, uh, Morgan had a garage band. Um, it was called The Odd Jobs, and it was just a few of his neighborhood friends, and they would play constantly. <laughs> and so some of my first memories are of me, you know, dancing in the driveway while they were rocking out and doing their whole 80s garage band thing. Um, and I think that probably is what just being observing Morgan being such a dedicated artist from such a young age really had a big influence on me. And I started um, singing in church. That was probably my first performing experience. Um, Started getting invited to sing solos. And so that was really where I became accustomed to singing in front of people. Were you in the Um, choir at an early age? Were you in church choir? I was not in church choir. I mostly would sing solo. uh, I would do solo performances. And and I also, I was in choir in school. um, And I was in a few various uh, children's choirs. There was a Mendocino children's choir for a while. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Um, Um, Yeah. And uh, so, but it, it wasn't until... Uh, Morgan and Johnny Bush uh, had a little duo that they were performing at Lipinski's. Lipinski's Juice Joint. Lipinski's Juice Joint mm-hmm. there on Ukiah Street, now Frankie's. Um, they had a regular open mic. And Morgan kind of dragged me into it. I was really not interested, actually, in performing at that point. I was 16 and shy and... <laughs> He had to really convince me. And he got me an album for my 16th birthday by Gillian Welch. And that kind of, she that really inspired me. She inspired me a lot. And we started covering some of her songs. And that's where it started. And uh, so that trio, Moreland, Daniel, and Bush, eventually became Foxglove. Um, we, you know, got a mandolin player, Bowie Volk, and we started being called Foxglove. So, yeah. Yeah. And Fox, uh, we'll talk later, but Fox Club is resurfacing coming up, yeah. right? Yes. Great. Yes. That's excellent. We are. Great. <laughs> well, um, now, um, you also uh, started around this time becoming interested in writing music, right? Yeah. Now, that is something, uh, a good, the great portion from what I could tell of your album is you've written most of the tunes. Yeah. I, yep. I, I historically, I mean, I did, we'll talk about it later, I know, but mm-hmm. I did end up co-writing with my husband more recently, but mm-hmm. I started writing 
more really in my early 20s um, is really mm-hmm. when I started writing my own stuff. Foxglove has a lot of Morgan's tunes, uh, especially back in those days. He was a really, is a really prolific writer and a great writer. Um, so he was also an inspiration with that. But I went to college uh, in my you know late teens, early 20s in Colorado and really took a break from music during that time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and studied veterinary technology, became a certified vet tech, moved back home. And that's around the time that I started writing again because I started hanging out. Or I, not again, but I, that's when I first started writing because I started hanging out with Will Stenberg and Angie Hyman, and they were really great writers, and they actually taught me how to write songs. What were some key things then in your first, uh, uh, you know, first sojourns into writing music? Yeah. I mean, what got you going? Because I, when we do talk to people who are uh, songwriters, you know, you, of, you often wonder how, about that. I was feeling really pretty melancholy when I first moved back to Mendocino from Denver. Um, I, I was feeling, you know, very kind of dramatic and emotional about it, being back home, and I had been living in in the city, and what am I doing here, and missed my friends in Denver, but was making new friends here on the coast. Um, And a lot of my songs really are about that, my early songs. Western Shores was one of my first songs, and it's a real nostalgic piece about, yeah, being back on the coast and missing the Rockies. And then the song Moving On that I co-wrote with Angie was also kind of talking about that same thing, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. how time kind of moves on. Um, Kind of a young person's, you know, my, I think I was awakening to that fact that time was moving on and I was not sure what I was doing with my life. And, And then a song Chess, which was on my first solo album, really talked that's about a dream that I had where I reconnected with a friend in Denver who had committed suicide actually the day that I moved away and um that was a real emotional time I think that that's why I was so emotional about moving home there was kind of this big dramatic and heartbreaking thing that happened the day that I left Denver and it really affected me but the positive thing is it inspired me to write and it was a yeah, something I could pull from. When you start writing a song, is there a typical thing you start thinking of a tune? and Or do you think of words first? I mean, this yeah. is oftentimes, this is sometimes a thing where somebody can't say, well, I always start with words or I always start with a tune. Yeah, right. I'm that way too because mm-hmm. it happens all different ways for me. I, I think in general, I, I think of melodies first. I'm much more melody oriented in my brain than words it it's really much easier for me to come up with melody and chord structure than words and that's why I really love co-writing because I can I can focus on that part of it but yeah for me I think in general it is melody first mm-hmm. and then I I struggle to come up with words to you know fit in <laughs> to the structure. <laughs> you know, you say that, but it strikes me as I was listening to your uh, uh, Gwyneth Moreland um, life full of songs, oeuvre, mm-hmm. as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you are a balladeer, mm-hmm. and uh, a good portion of your songs are ballads. Right. And so they're stories set to music. Yeah. And as I was uh, listening, re-listening to songs last night, and uh, you and I exchanged a list, and you talked about some of your favorites, 
and I listen to those, I think those are really beautiful ballads. Is does that come naturally to your storyteller? Uh, yeah. talk, and talk about that a bit. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess you're you're right. I um I I do and I enjoy listening to ballads as well. I've always been a big fan, partly because of my, my parents' influence, especially my dad was very into Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. <laughs> Grew up listening to those records. Um, and being kind of steeped in American folk ballads. Um, and so, yeah, that, that does come naturally to me. And, yeah, I think that type of writing really is, is yeah, comes much more easily to me than having a chorus and a bridge and all of those um, kind of pop song, the usual... Uh, structures structure exactly mm-hmm. of a of a pop song so, yeah. yeah and then when you do a ballad you're coming out with you know verse after verse of a story and then um does it feel like there's a place where there's a chorus needed do you feel like a natural place like let's put a chorus in here yes yeah i think that's yeah it always has to feel natural and that does yeah that does and sometimes it's just maybe at the very end or just once at the very beginning <laughs> um there's so many different ways a song can be constructed that yeah i do love choruses i mean i i I'm not going to say I don't just do ballads, but um, yeah, I definitely think it has to be calling for it, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll t- we'll we'll talk about some of your specific songs toward the end because um, uh, there is you know certain ones we would like to talk about. So let's get back to the the Moreland bio. Okay. So you mentioned about going to uh, college in Colorado and studying vet tech. Fill us in on these years when you were there and what it was like to study vet tech and maybe perhaps your feelings toward animals that led you there. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, um, as a child, um, I was always, you know, interested in animal care and animal husbandry. Uh, you can probably hear the chickens in the background here. My parents always had animals. Uh, my mom grew up on a very active farm in Iowa as a child, I mean, they were still farming with horses when she was a kid. So um, there, were, she always had an influence on me in that way. Um, she's an animal lover. And so when I found a program in Denver uh, that you could get trained to be a vet tech and have a career in it, I jumped at the chance. Uh, but, you know, moving to the school is actually in Aurora, which is a suburb of Denver, and it was a total shock for this country kid to move to the suburbs. I lived in a little apartment with a stranger, a girl from Connecticut who was also attending college with me. And I definitely went through, I think I went through a period where I didn't really talk to anybody for <laughs> a few months. It was a very, like, I was just kind of in shock. And it wasn't until I got a job in downtown Denver as a waitress um, and started making friends and having more of a you know active social life outside of school that I really actually learned to love Denver. Um, I had a great time there. It just took me a, quite a few months to adjust. And the snow, you know, the weather was totally different, but it was great. I, I went there looking for an adventure, and it didn't seem like that was going to happen at first because it just seemed so boring <laughs> living in the cement, you know, apartment complex. But, you know, I found the adventure or the adventure did find me eventually. What kind of stuff do you study in vet tech school? Yeah, all sorts of yeah. every species that you can really think of. You know, we studied large animal um, pocket pets. So like rodents, um, reptiles, birds, dogs and cats, of course. And you 
yeah, you learn how to assist the veterinarian in surgery. Vet techs really are interesting because you do everything from you're, you're a radiology technician, you're a dental tech, you're, you know, a doctor's assistant, um, a phlebotomist. You do all of the things which in human medicine, there, you know, there's separate careers for each of those titles. But as a vet tech, you do it all on all of the different species. Um, so it's a pretty interesting and exciting job. Um, I've continued doing it since then. Um, so it's getting to be close to 20 years, really, that I've been in the field. Yeah, it's been a great job. And one of the things that always fascinates me about vets or, or vet techs, too, when my wife brings our cat, because I'm hopeless at getting it into the little carrying Yes, thing, oh, God, yes. Um, to the vet, and, the, and it arrives at the vet's place, the vet takes it out and seems to have a natural way with the animal straight away. The animal is calm, much calmer than me trying to put the thing in right. to, the, to the bank. I mean, do you, do you feel like you have that affinity with animals or relationship? Yes, I do. I, I'd say some of it is a relationship. Some of it is just survival skills that I've learned over the years <laughs> to not get attacked by the cats yeah. you <laughs> or dogs. You yeah. learn how to control uh, the energy that you're putting out. So if you're feeling any anxiety or concern, if a cat's hissing and acting like it's going to bite you, you just don't react to it. You move quickly. You don't let any of your pheromones <laughs> or anything be, you know, out in the air. You have to keep everything really, it's like acting in a way. And maybe that's partly as a performer, it was came naturally to me um, to just kind of, you just get you know, you just do it. You, you get on stage, whether you're nervous or not. The show must go on. The cat has to come out of the box and has to get its vaccines no matter what. The show must go on. So, yeah. Yeah, I was curious. And, and Ken is a uh, massive bird lover. Yes, Ken, I know. Actually, I can give a uh, testimonial. Gwyneth <laughs> took care of our birds a number of times when we left town. And, uh, of course, we are down to two now, oh. neither of which you, you ever took care of. But Sunny Woody and Boomer are. Yeah. Oh man. Boomer yeah. Twenty-seven years of, but she <laughs> is fantastic with uh, with animals. Definitely, oh. our our animals did you know seem to really like her. Ah. Is there a huge difference between calming down a bird and oh, yeah. calming down a cat? Yeah, say. definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. I don't know if there is any calming down a bird. <laughs> 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 they have to get used to you. That's yeah, the they do. And birds are interesting because they're so, uh, they haven't really been domesticated. They're still pretty wild. You could, you know, they could survive if they were set free in the right environment and it wasn't too cold or too hot, you know, they could survive. And so, yeah, they're, they're a challenge and they're so fragile. Yeah. Uh, I really, I really like visiting Ken's and seeing the birds, and I'm, uh, I'm always respectful of birds. Yeah, and I never would ever want to hurt an animal, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, geez, don't get too close, leave them alone, don't scare them, don't make them right. nervous. I know. Uh -huh. Yeah, no, you have yeah. to move just so, and yeah, I don't want to startle them. And all animals are that way. Horses too. Um, yeah, I did my internship in college at a horse hospital, Littleton Large Animal Clinic, and it was a, a racehorse uh, surgical facility. Oh. Uh, we did all sorts of horses, but mostly it's racehorses that end up getting the big expensive surgeries because they're such valuable animals. 
but that was a really interesting experience. Um, I learned a lot. Really glad I did it. They offered me a job at the end of my internship, and I looked around and I saw all of the technicians were all kind of limping and, <laughs> you know, recovering from shattered hips. And, yeah. you know, I just said, I don't think that's for me. Like, I, yeah, I loved the work, but um, it just, yeah, it's a dangerous job working with horses. And, uh, I mean, I, I have horses and I still do work with horses somewhat, but being around racehorses are just such amazing, amazingly powerful animals. So, yeah, that's when I moved yeah. home. Yeah. Well, speaking of moving home, I mean, you came back and, um, uh, you know, soon thereafter, did you get a job here right away in the vet tech thing? And yeah. Then, uh-huh, and then, yep. go ahead. Well, my first job, actually, when I first moved home, I want I needed to work right away. So I started, I got hired by Jeff Stanford at the Ravens, <laughs> the restaurant there. I wasn't sure if I was going to get a job at a vet clinic. So I worked there for a very short time. And then I did get hired by Mendocino Coast Animal Hospital up in Fort Bragg that was owned by um, Sarah Quentin at that time. And I had worked there previously before I went to college as a kennel technician. Um, so that was great. I worked there for a long time. Um, she eventually retired, um, sold it to a new owner, and I worked there um, under that veterinarian for a few years as well. And it was a great, it's a great day job um, because you get off, you know, at 5.30 and then I could stay up all night playing music. Um, it worked really well for me. Um, not so much now. (laughs) I'm not able to really (laughs) stay up all night playing music anymore. But at that point in my early 20s, it was great. You could work hard all day, make good money, and then be up all night. So when you came back in your early 20s and you had this urge to stay up all night and playing music, you did hit the ground running. You did get on with that. And you played, I mean, I know you wrote by yourself, but you also have had a sort of a career of playing with a variety of people. Yes. And I believe uh, you started working with Foxglove around this time, and that would be you, Johnny Bush, Bowie Volk, and uh, Morgan, yeah. Morgan Daniels. So yeah. talk to us a little bit about getting involved with Foxglove yeah. and, and, and that. Yeah, we had played, before I went to college, you know, we were pretty active, but then obviously when I moved away, we took a break. Um, but when I came back, the summer I moved back, we... Got to play at Wild Iris Folk Festival. We kind of, yeah, um, just started getting really busy. We also played at Sonoma County Fair, um, started recording an album. Um, Just we were really busy in those days. We played out a lot. It was really fun. You know, we were, those guys were, we were all younger and their kids were young. And um, we just were, we pretty much stayed close to home. But we did tour down to San Francisco a little bit and, uh, yeah, it was great. I got to kind of just gain, you know, get my chops up, I guess, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. learn how to perform. And you were doing songs that were Morgan's and yours and covers as well? Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Mostly Morgan wrote music for Foxglove in those days. I hadn't really started writing too much right at, right when I first moved back and I was just pr- mostly performing with Foxglove. I didn't write too much or I wasn't brave enough to share my songs with them yet so we did mostly covers and Morgan's music and I during that time though when I that first year that I was back on the coast started hanging out with Will Stenberg and he's an incredible songwriter and he really gave me some good tips on how to write and as soon as you know I started writing quite a bit at that point and 
started integrating my songs into Foxglove. Yeah, eventually, pretty soon. Yeah. What were some of the tips that Will gave you? Rhyming structure, um, pentameter, just uh, and and I think also he he we were talking about how I have written a number of ballads. I think he kind of gave me permission in a way that that was acceptable. There's lots of I just remember him saying, "There's really no rules. You can write a song, however you know, in whatever structure you want. If you want to, you know, repeat a line." You know, at the end of every um, verse, you can do that. You know, I think he just had, he had been to um, the Folk School of Chicago. I'm not sure if I'm, it may have a different name than that. But he took classes there. And so he could really share some of what he learned with me, um, which was um, essentially mostly just giving me permission to go for it and not be afraid. If I may, you also recorded with Will's group at the time, right? I did, yeah. And what um, was that? Um, the Kerosene Condors were real active at that point. They were they started out as a real jug band. They had a wash tub bass and um, washboard, mm. and even had a jug you know player occasionally. Kind of a punk rock jug band thing. It kind of cha- it morphed over the years. We got a you know a stand up bass player. I played accordion and sang backup with them um, quite a bit, and that was real fun. I mean we. That was a real raucous band, and, uh, you know, we did some wild and crazy things. Um, <laughs> very different from your style. Very different from Foxglove uh, and, yeah, and my style, but it was really, really fun to explore that type of music. And I got to, yeah, explore playing the accordion, and, um, yeah, it was a great time. Now, playing the accordion, presumably you had piano as a child? Yeah, or, yeah I, I, mean, I did. Because... It always seems our uh, keyboard player who plays with Hit and Run Theater, Joshua Rell Brody, also plays accordion. Okay. And considers it fairly daunting. He considers it right. challenging. It's different, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, and I have to admit, I don't really play the button side of the accordion. I play a, I play it like a piano. Um, I, mm-hmm. I only play the, the keys that... Um, and so, yeah, I've, I've never been officially trained in how to play the accordion. I've just kind of made it up as I go along. Um, and I did have piano lessons as a kid, but, you know, as my mom would say, <laughs> my poor parents, I don't think I, I think I ran off the stage uh, <laughs> in a piano recital. I, I was really, uh, as a kid and, and somewhat now, I'm um, kind of against learning how to read music. Uh, it really cramped my style. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, that's how I felt as a kid anyway I wanted to play by ear I wanted to work things out on my own Um, I wasn't real interested in learning how to read music so I did take piano lessons for a while and I'm really glad I did but they didn't last all that long Mm -hmm. I think my parents decided to stop spending the money after, you know, it was made pretty clear that I wasn't going to, you know, be playing Chopin or anything. Well, there you go. I was just (laughs) curious about that. So it was around, it was soon thereafter, around this time, you started working with the the Blushing Roulettes, which is a fabulous name, by the way. And I think it's, it was originally an all-girl folk band, It sure was, yeah. Uh, It would be great if you could give us a little, because the Blushing Roulettes are still playing. Yes. And you're, you're back with them now and then? Yeah. uh, Give us sort of an overview of the Blushing Roulettes. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Angie, um, Angela Rose or Angie Hyman, she has various uh, names that she goes by on the stage. Um, but she was a member of the Kerosene Condors when I first moved back. And she and I um, just made instant friends um, and started writing together. She also taught me a lot about songwriting. She's a fabulous songwriter. And yeah, we just kind of got an idea to start a girl band. Um, so we, and Kate Stone was part of that. Um, so it was Angie, Kate, and Jenny Stevens. Um, she played drums, and we had a fiddle player from San Francisco named Carrie. And so we would play down in the city um, occasionally, and we'd drive down there to rehearse with her, and she'd come up here and... I'd say that uh, that flavor of Blush and Roulette's lasted, I don't know if it was even a year. Um, we played at the Casper Inn quite a bit. But I was working a lot, and I, I was working at the Vet. I was in the Condors, and I was in Foxglove, and I pretty much backed out of that band pretty early on as, you know, I, I couldn't be a permanent member. I was just too busy, and I wasn't going to be able to tour with them or um, do too much. So they kind of continued on without me. I would, you know, continue to sit in with them um, whenever I could, but I was not a, you know, a permanent member. Um, and yeah, they've changed. Eventually, Jubal Steadman and Garth Beckington and Luke Stone We had and Cass Soshaki joined the band and, you know, boys were allowed eventually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, but you're, you're working with them now and then here. Now and then know. here, yeah. When they mm-hmm. come to visit, they live in North Carolina now. Oh. Um, yeah. And, but like this summer, um, they, they're here, they've been here for a few weeks um, and I'll be sitting in with them at Piaggi's on Thursday this oh. week. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always fun to, to play with them. Yeah. Great, great, great. Now, getting back to the chronology of, of the Moreland career, um, yeah. in 2009, you came out with your first album. Yes. And, uh, and that was Wishbone? Yes. And you also began touring with Michael Monco. Yeah. And this was the sort of the, the beginning of the rather significant touring career. Yeah. Um, uh, the next four years or so, you played all over the... I looked, you know, as I looked, the places you yeah. played, I saw a lot of similar places to when Tracy Burns and I were in Brazil. Oh. We played all over the Pacific Northwest yeah. and into the Rockies and yes. sort of West Coast around to there. Yeah. And you guys did too. Yeah. And um, uh, this this is, um, you were also recording a variety of songs and you, there's really some excellent um, stuff that I was able to listen to. Mm-hmm. In these days, good old Horace Eloise, some really neat songs uh, you played. Tell us about this uh, touring time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, I yeah, I've been thinking about it, and I, you know, I recorded Wishbone uh, with Calvin Turnbull at Old School Studio, which um, was there in Casper, the town of Casper, the old Wind and Weather Building there on the edge of the cliffs. Um, he had a great studio there that was set up by Bill Bottrell, another local uh, guy in the music scene. But so I, when when I finally finished that album, it took quite a few years because I was just doing it by myself and paying for it myself. Yeah, I saw an opportunity to travel. It was like, oh, I could use this as something to just go go do whatever I want. And I just grabbed the opportunity. I quit my job at the vet's office. Michael Monko was um, game. 
and he was a great musician and we were partners and it just worked out. He had a, and he had a VW van, which made it even better. So we could just hit the road and we kind of learned how to perform together on the road. I mean, we, there wasn't a whole lot of time to get ready. He just kind of learned my songs. Um, he was able to just jump right in and, um, we just, yeah, put stuff together <laughs> really <laughs> haphazardly. I don't know how we did it, but we we pulled it off. <laughs> well, you, uh, he played guitar and mandolin. Yeah. Did he play banjo or anything like uh, that? No, he mm-hmm. didn't. Mm-hmm. He was really, he played acoustic guitar and electric guitar and uh, and mandolin. He His background was uh, in the grunge scene in the oh. 90s um, in Oakland. Uh, so he had a real, like, hard rock. Uh, history and that was kind of fun because uh, well you know there's actually some real similarities musically I think between bluegrass and like heavy metal I know that seems weird but there's a real percussive uh, driving force in both those types of music so I think for him it was a real natural uh, you know progression to go from hard rock to you know kind of folk bluegrassy stuff um and he always had a real driving guitar sound and mandolin sound behind my songs which was just fabulous um and and he was just really a driven i think he was was a little older than me he was able to help me kind of stay focused he was real business minded and we made great business partners in that way too he was you know helped me to you know get portfolios together he had done all of that as you know in in Oakland, he had made, you know, press packages before and released albums and sent them to radio stations. So he had some experience that I didn't really have yet. Um, he put together a website. So that was great. Um, so without that experience, I don't I would have been pretty lost, but we were able to hit the road and actually be pretty professional about it. Like pretty quickly, we started landing bigger gigs um, and we just decided to stick with it. We had these circles that we would, these loops, you know, we did the Pacific Northwest and then we would do um, the Southwest and then we would do the Southeast and then we'd go back to the Northwest and then we'd do, you know, so we would repeat these loops so that we could continue, you know, every six months or so be reestablishing relationships with fans. Um, And it it seemed to work. We made some really close friends over those years. People would continue to come back to our shows. And yeah, it was was a good time. Yeah, (laughs) there there was a lot, there is a lot of songs uh, in this era that I enjoyed seeing the stuff that I guess it was on either NPR or PBS that you guys were playing in in Tennessee and Nashville. That was a was. real big deal for us. We were super excited to land that gig. We worked at it for a long time, <laughs> finally. Yeah. Uh, we really learned that being the squeaky wheel in the music industry is really what you got to do. You just have to continue to advocate for yourself. And that is one gig we just um, kept you know, kept at. Um, and they finally had enough of a following and a name that we got accepted onto um, – Music City Roots, and that was really fun. Yeah, and it's still, I think they're, those videos are still played on PBS. They kind of have reruns of those all the time, so it's I like fun. them. I watched them. I thought they were great. Thanks. I really enjoyed fun. it, and the uh, production values are very high. Oh, it was you know. great. It was really fun.
Yeah, so anyway, I enjoyed uh, listening to those things. And then any other, uh, you know, road stories you might have where you boot off stage or something, yeah, Blues right. Brothers, beer bottles or any of that <laughs> stuff? So many stories. Oh, my mm-hmm. gosh. I don't know. I think the the main thing that was that I could say that was pretty interesting is that we figured out pretty quickly that um, staying in hotels was not – financially a good option or even staying in campgrounds. We, mm-hmm. we didn't have any extra money whatsoever. Um, we were kind of living off a uh, subway at that point. Um, you could get a foot long sandwich for $5 and we were vegetarian at that time. So we would just kind of live off of subway sandwiches. We would split a foot long and that was kind of our meal for the day. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how we survived, yeah. but we discovered that Walmart you can camp for free at any uh, super center, Walmart super center. So you can just, <laughs> and they're everywhere all over the country. So we would just drive and drive and drive, you know, until we could find a Walmart super center and camp for free. And that's essentially how we survived. And the stuff I witnessed in Walmart parking lots, you know, in the middle of the night, I would kind of peer out the window and lift the blind. And just the stuff I saw was pretty crazy. Um, I don't know. And using the bathrooms in the Walmarts or, get you know, pulling in at three in the morning and needing to, I don't know, get some supplies, just stuff you see. It was just a, a really interesting experience. You know, you could probably put together a, a kind of a, a reel that would be uh, a Gwyneth's uh, unknown stories at Walmart. Totally. Or you could yeah. write, you could actually write a song, uh, your Walmart touring year. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. We, we thought about it. And there was like these weird things that we didn't ever witnessed this but there's like walmart weddings and stuff there's there are like youtube like if you search like there's weird stuff that happens at walmart's um and there's just like the culture a lot of people were living in their cars um in walmart shopping centers you would just i don't know it would just amazed me you'd we were kind of living with a group of people that were living out of their cars and there'd be people with their suits hanging, you know, they were getting up and putting on their suit in the morning and going to work and there were construction guys and just, it was a whole culture of people living in their cars like us and working and traveling. And it was just, it was really interesting to see that all around the country. Yeah. But yeah, in general, our perform I don't know, I don't think we were ever booed off of stage, luckily. Mm-hmm. But there were definitely some interesting shows, which, yeah. yeah, I don't know. There's too many to get into. <laughs> well, that those uh, is it called Music City? The the NPR, oh yeah, Music PBS City ones? Roots. Yeah, those are terrific. Those are tri- I, I highly recommend those to our listeners. Yeah. So, from what I've read, you you in 2013 you split up and yep. you decided to focus on your solo stuff again, and you recorded ceilings, floors, and open doors. In the evenings after work, while you were vet teching, and yep. you worked with David Hayes at his home studio, and started to also work with the Mendocino Quartet, which is David Hayes, Gene Parsons, Stephen Bates, and yourself. Yes, talk a little yeah. bit about that transition. Okay, yeah, I yeah I, I started working at Village Vet when I came out, you know, start when I came off the road, got a mm-hmm. job at Village Vet um, working for Karen Novak, and um, she was great because she was real flexible. I I still toured a little bit during that time and she would let me work for a month and then take a month off and then I don't know she was she's she's been a great boss um 
very supportive of my music. But David Hayes, David and Katie Hayes came in with their old cat named Babs, and she needed fluid treatments at home. So she needed kind of some hospice care. And so I started doing home visits for them. And we knew who each other were. We definitely knew of each other, but we weren't close at that time. We had played together at uh, local licks live um and anyway david just offered to you know produce an album for me he was so generous and we just started um playing at night you know in the evenings i'd go up there gosh i mean it would be pretty late sometimes he was a real trooper uh <laughs> and yeah developed he helped me to develop some some of the songs i had you know, written on my own. Um, he had a, he has a real jazz uh, kind of influence, and that was really great. He taught me some jazz chords, which I really appreciate and really kind of helped, yeah, form my next direction, which was to have kind of a, a jazz uh, flavor, I guess. Um, and so we recorded Ceilings, Floors, and Open Doors, just the two of us, all live. I, I chose that album name because the door would always be open to his studio. And so there's lots of bird noises. Sometimes a skunk train would go by. And so that would be a bit of a problem. <laughs> so we, yeah. I don't think there's any train. I don't think any train made it onto the album because it was a little too intrusive. You know, it's like, yeah, too loud. But yeah. Um, and then let's see, Katie Hayes. Working for KOZT, she, I think, I'm pretty sure it was her idea. She came up with the idea for the Mendocino Quartet with Jean and Stephen and David and I. Um, they gave us a gig headlining at um, one of the Whale Festival gigs at Crown Hall. Um, and I don't know what year it was, maybe 2014 or 15. And... I think it. I don't. I think it was just going to be kind of a one-time thing, but that it sold out like right away, and it was packed, and it was so much fun. It was such a success, and we had such a good time that it just continued. Played quite a few shows locally, um, and toured to Davis. We played um, in Davis. I don't. I think that was maybe our only out-of-town gig. Um, unfortunately, we're not booking shows anymore. Um, the the pandemic and everything has kind of. Uh, I think changed, you know, everybody's focus a little bit, but I will forever be grateful for those years of playing with them. It was a true partnership between all of us and we would take turns singing. Yeah, take turns, we'd go around in a circle singing, you know, lead. We could choose which songs we wanted to perform and teach them to the band. Um and I really appreciated that. There was no real band leader. We were all equal. Mm-hmm. That's lovely, um, and also wonderful musicians. I mean, you're all you're all really great, and you also have nice voices. Yeah, it was really fun yeah, to sing four part harmony with those guys, and just fun to see different sides. Like Stephen, um, you might think of him as more of a rocker. Um, mm-hmm. Stephen Bates, he you know his solo stuff is you know it's rock and roll, but when he played with us, he was really shown as an acoustic musician and I mean I, I already knew that about him but it was really fun to to play with him in that way and his guitar playing um, style is real percussive so he was kind of like our percussion <laughs> section too uh-huh. and definitely fun to play with Gene and get to observe his incredible banjo and guitar playing and his voice and David as well just it's such a fun fun group. Well, you know, I think it's uh, Send Me Back Home. Is that yeah. with the quartet? Yes. That one has beautiful background harmonies. Uh, yes. I think you're singing lead and yep. the boys are singing in this really 
uh, it's not words. I can't remember exactly what. So right, and there's a ooze, and yeah. yeah, there's some words and some ooze, and yeah, that was really fun to yeah to come up with different background vocals um, with those guys. There was it was always really interesting. But all of them, we all have such different experiences, and we could pull from different types of music and come up with different yeah kind of. Well, is this one going to have doo-wop or is this going to, you know, what type of background vocals? It was, it's a real um, centerpiece to that band is the backup vocals. So. Well, good. Good yeah. teamwork. Huh? Yes. Good, really good teamwork. Yeah. Now, it's around this time that uh, you married your, your husband, Skylar Hinkle, and you've written many songs together. And now you're performing when you can, or at least yes. uh, as one half of Marine Layer. Do you write the music and Skylar the lyrics? Or uh, tell us about yeah. this partnership. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, mostly it's his lyrics and I write the um, the music. But not always. There's definitely um, a few songs that he has, you know, come up with the, the melody or the music and I've just, and the words, and I've just helped with a few lines. He's just, he's really able to do it all. So yeah, it happens both ways. Yeah, I wish we could perform more, but we've got two kids and, you know, it's uh, this phase of our life, you know, is pretty busy with other stuff. But. If I can interject yes. and ask a question also. Yeah. Um, this is shows what a small town Mendocino is. You met him at work, right? I did. He was a vet tech as well. So, oh. yeah. I know. Yeah, exactly. I was his boss. Do you boss. mind telling us that? Yeah, tell <laughs> yeah. us that story. Yeah. Was so, this an HR problem? I know. <laughs> no, it didn't end up being one, luckily. Um, but yeah, I, he, yeah, we, we hired him at Village Vet as a, as a vet assistant and he, um, he and I became just really good friends, um, and that was, we just, we worked together and were good friends for a couple years. Um, and then we both ended up being single around the same time, getting out of relationships. Um, he had a son who was about a year and a half at that time. And um, yeah, the timing worked out just perfect. And we ended up, you know, started dating. I didn't even really realize that he was a musician that much. He kept it kind of hidden um, while we were friends and work partners. Um, but I was really excited to, as we started dating, I started to get to know him better to, to find out what an incredible writer and musician he is. But yeah, so we, you know, and we have a lot of animals. We have two kids now mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of pets and yeah. So music, yeah. animals, yeah. and kids. Yep. That's, that's a big, That's big part of it right now. So. It really yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> now, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about six songs that you, yeah. you had sent me. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about each song, and then we could perhaps have the music playing over the okay. over the top here. So we'll talk about, how about Chess On? Yeah, oh, yeah. Said, and it's actually just called Chess. Chess, um, I okay. know, I think that maybe that was like Chess on Wishbone, the album, or, you know, okay. it, but yeah, Chess is a, yeah. Go ahead. Chess is a song, one of the first songs I wrote when I moved back from Colorado, and it really was about um, a dream that I had reconnecting with a friend who who had passed away recently. And I still really, I like listening to that song occasionally. I mean, I've had, you know, as we all, as we get older, we have friends that pass on. And um, that gift of when you get to have a dream with someone that has passed on and they visit you 
is a really special thing. And I think it probably happens to everybody. Um, you know, I hope. I think it's a real gift when that gets to happen. And this friend in particular, he had committed suicide. And I was kind of, yeah, asking him, are you okay? Is everything all right? And yeah, he says, yeah, I, I, I play a lot of chess. I mean, I don't know what it meant, but you know, I woke up and I wrote the song. and the end of the song kind of there's a little bit of a trumpet thing calvin turnbull did there's a little outro it's kind of like a second line kind of a feeling um yeah so that that song will always have kind of an emotional place in my heart um for sure second line is from new orleans second line yeah mm-hmm. yeah the brass you know yeah exactly kind of a yeah, ascending, sending out with horns and and celebration. And a couple years uh, later, you wrote "Can't Stay Long," and this is with Monco on mandolin. And yes. I saw the video and filmed on a farm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we. I wrote that song. Um, yeah, just sitting in the VW van that we were living in. We were um, in Sisters, Oregon. We spent a lot of time in Sisters. It, it was kind of a home base for us of sorts. We had Monko had some dear friends that later, you know, became my dear friends as well. Woodworkers. Uh, Monko was a woodworker. He went to the um, College of the Redwoods program. That's why James Cranoff. Yeah, the Cranoff mm-hmm. program. Exactly. So. That was one thing that was really great. Um, since those students come from all over the country, well, and all over the world, we got to, it was always, there was always someone's backyard or someone's driveway we could park in that was a woodworker. You know, it was great. But so one of, a, a woodworker um, that we was, yeah, that lived up there and we got to camp on his property. And he uh, was also a photographer and he offered to, yeah, make a video of that song, Can't Stay Long. I had just written it. It was pretty fresh when we made that music video. But it was just how I was feeling at the time, was we were just moving constantly. Um, and we would have these connections with people, um, you know, and then move, you know, move on. We'd, you know, have an hour or two long show, break down the set, you know, get in our van, drive till three in the morning, you know, and do it again, you know, the next night. So, uh, kind of just a little slice of what life looked like at that point. Yeah. And then comes, uh, we mentioned earlier with the uh, Mendocino Quartet, you did Send Me Back Home. Yeah. So I wrote that song um, right around the time that I moved I, I moved back home, you know, off the road, right around the time that Monko and I split up. Um, so it was really, you know, just a, it really looks at how I felt at that time, which was, you know, I've been kind of lost. I've been rambling around. I don't know what's, you know, what's next for me. Um, but I, you know, I want to go back home. Like, and I just, re- that felt really, it felt, I felt that really strongly. I wanted to be back in Mendocino. I wanted to be back on the coast. Life on the road was, I was exhausted. <laughs> and then we had, we come to 2017, you wrote uh, Danny Parker with Skylar. Yes. And um, it's a lovely song. Tell us a little bit about Danny Parker. Yeah, it was probably one of our first co-writes. That, uh, the chorus, which is creeping creeping in the fog, sleeping in a hollow log, you know, and goes on from there. But that chorus had been kind of following me around for years. I wrote that kind of when I, in in the years when I was driving back and forth to Old Mill Farm, out those dirt roads, and it was always foggy and just such an eerie feeling out there, you know, at nighttime and so beautiful. So anyway, that chorus had been 
in my head and that guitar part had been in my head and I just had never been able to move forward with that song. It really was years. And so Skylar sat down and said, let's figure this out. Let's write a song. So he wrote the the verses to that, which is a story, a ballad of, you know, kind of kind of a stalker <laughs> that, you know, dies of a broken heart. <laughs> it's, you know, kind of a dark song, which a lot of my songs are quite dark. I guess that's what people say anyway. Um, it's kind of haunting. Yeah, it's I haunting. There, I, I like it, it for that haunting. reason. Yeah. And then comes uh, another ballad, Ride to Mexico, that also I believe yes. uh, you and Skylar wrote. Yes. Um, yeah, and that song is mostly on Skylar. Um, I may have helped a bit with the chord progression, but um, we, when we first started you know, having our romantic, you know, relationship. We had been friends a long time, but when we would text each other, we would text haikus to each other. And um, one of them was some, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was kind of like, let's, you know, saddle up the horses and ride to Mexico. Like, let's just get out of here. Because it it seemed daunting at that time for us to, we were, we worked together. We were both getting out of um, long-time relationships. It was that feeling of like, let's just go. Let's just run away together. Um, and so that's where uh, Ride to Mexico came from, from those haiku conversations. <laughs> and yeah, that song is on Country Nocturne. It's funny, they all blend together. David Hayes produced that song as well. And um, yeah, that's a, it's a fun one. <laughs> well, the last one is um, A Toast of Gratitude. Oh, yeah. Which I, is that a McCarrigal sister song? It is, song? yeah, and that, yeah. And that, give us the background on Toast of Gratitude. Okay, yes. And I'm blanking out. It's That's not the name of the song, though. What is the name okay, of the, the song? Okay, the original uh, song. Mendocino? Yeah. Speak, talk to me of Mendocino. Yeah, I think something like that. Yeah. Gosh, I wish I, should, I could remember the name of the song. But anyway, yes, it's a McGarrickle sister song. And I was, uh, let's see, I was camping out at Toad Hall, which uh, any uh, Mendo locals you know, that have lived here a long time may remember that place. Um, but I get, we are friends with the woman who owns that and she allows us to camp out there sometimes, which is so nice. It's such a beautiful spot, but it just was a funny coincidence because I was there kind of feeling all, oh, I wish I was alive when this place was in a club and so much stuff must have happened out here. And then I, and it was in the middle of the pandemic. So I was feeling especially forlorn and <laughs> heartbroken about music um, because everything had come to a screeching halt. And Lori York, a local um, filmmaker and artist, um, called me out of the blue and uh, asked if I would sing um, a song for a video she was making for the Mendocino Music Festival. Um, and it was, yeah, to be kind of we're putting the music festival on hold because of the pandemic, but we, you know, it was just a video to represent their gratitude, um, well, our gratitude to the community for the support and that we're still here and we'll be back, which they have come back. They will be, the music festival will be back very soon. So yeah, that was a great uh, mid-pandemic project for me. And I have a home recording studio, so I was able to record the vocals by myself in the, my studio and I worked with Julian Pollock um, the son of Alan Pollock and uh, who's you know very involved with the music festival and that was a great experience um, and I, I just was so pleased with that project it felt like such a gift that they asked me to do that because I was yeah like I said I was just feeling so sad that I wasn't playing as much um, during the pandemic you know, it's a beautiful song anyway, 
and you sing it really beautifully. Thank you. It's just lovely to listen to. Thank you. So, well, finally, I, you mentioned you have two sons, um, Leo and Hank. And yeah. um, tell us about your kids. And uh, you were, maybe you're in Skylar's plans to combine, you know, parenting and yeah. um, your art into yes. the future. Exactly. Yeah. Um, my stepson, Leo, um, he's going to be going into sixth grade, which is just wild. Crazy how time flies. And Hank is going to be going into first grade. They're great. They're very musical children. There's a lot of, well, in the same way that I grew up, there's just a lot of music around the house, banging on the piano, that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, Skylar has been amazing, you know, through the years, especially when Hank was little. He really just held down the home front while I was performing with the quartet or doing my solo stuff or playing with Foxglove. Um there were many nights where he was home alone with the kids and, you know, just holding down the fort and uh, or even going on the road with me. I mean, we we actually went to San Francisco one time and we have this huge Ford truck and we had a camper <laughs> on top. And there we were driving, you know, the city streets with the kids. And I don't know what we were thinking, but we did it. Didn't ever do it again. But I feel like now that they're older now that, you know, we're going to start to be able to perform again, I hope, um, the pandemic is allowing us to, you know, musicians to start playing out more. I have a feeling that we will be, you know, picking back up and, and performing. We have been working on stuff. It's funny, we've been really, um, when we play at home lately, we've been playing a lot of covers, kind of a lot of Rolling Stones and The Doors, and we've been kind of exploring Kind of a different style, which has been really fun. Um, during the pandemic, I took uh, classes um, from Berklee School of Music in Boston, online classes, and actually got a certification for general music and then blues guitar as well. So I'm hoping that, you know, maybe the next phase will be a little bit different. I think I'm different. We all change, you know. I'm I'm kind of ready to embark on a on a different musical style, I think. And and Skylar and I are going to Yeah, that's kind of our next thing. Well, it's been great talking with you. I think it's really apropos that we've had so many bird voices in the background here. We're sitting outside here in Gwyneth's parents' gazebo. Yeah, I bet you Mike built this. He sure did. Yeah, I bet that's her yeah. dad. And, and the brick oven there, too. Yeah. yeah. And we're right next to a brick oven. But with all these pizza. birds. <laughs> yeah. Lots of pizza. With all these birds singing and the occasional chicken or, or dog in the distance, it yeah. really feels kind of nature's music going on. So yeah. yeah. I really do. I think birds are probably who taught humans to sing. That's what I've always thought. I've yeah. always thought music and singing was, you know, humans trying to. We're being inspired by birds. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, you've been great, Gwyneth Moreland. We really Thank appreciate you. it. And thanks, thanks for being with uh, Ken and I and Marshall, yes. who's not here right now, on Snap Sessions. And we'll look forward to having this out sometime in the fall. Well, thank you guys so much. So honored to be asked to do this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks to our artist activist of the show, singer-songwriter Gwyneth Moreland. Our production team includes Techmeister Marshall Brown, Jack of All Trades Ken Krause, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. 
Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes.